But this morning, if you would take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be reading verse 27 through chapter 2 and verse 4. And uh, so if you would uh, grab that section, and I'm going to read that first as we get started. Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 4. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In a book that probably some of you are familiar with uh, called Pilgrim's Progress, Puritan writer John Bunyan describes the path of Christian and his friend Faithful as they travel to the celestial city, which is representative of heaven, through this world of temptation and danger. As citizens of heaven traveling through this world, Christian and Faithful face seriously their orders not to conform to this world, but to keep their eyes on communion with Jesus Christ. And so throughout the book, Bunyan presents this gospel focus. And it is really the focus that we have this morning from our passage in the very first statement in verse 27 there. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that is the main point of the whole text here. We, as believers, as citizens of heaven, are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our conduct in this world is a very serious matter. Conduct was important for the Philippian believers as well. And Paul uses a word here, the word conduct, to show them that they are actually citizens of heaven. And I'm going to show you that in a second, but citizenship in Philippi was very important. Philippi was a showcase of Roman cities. It was called Little Rome. It was on the Via Ignatia, which is the main road between Europe and Asia, And the layout of the city itself was patterned after Rome. It was given a colony status. 
and it was it had autonomous rule so they could rule themselves the citizens of philippi bore all the rights of the citizens of rome and that to them was extremely important so they had a lot of civic pride and even uh, some of the retired Roman soldiers moved to Philippi, quite a number of them, to, for retirement, to live there. Citizenship was so important to them that they felt duty-bound not to endanger their, the status of their city in any way. And that word conduct in verse 27 comes from the Greek word politulamai, which we get our English word politic from. And the meaning of that word there is to live as a citizen. But Paul here is not speaking to us about earthly citizenship. He is painting a picture from what the Philippians already understood well because of where they lived to illustrate for them and for us what we are called to do and what we are called to be. The Philippian church and Bethel Baptist church have a much higher calling than earthly citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. Paul makes this crystal clear in chapter 3 in verse 20 where he states plainly, for our citizenship is in heaven. And then the word only there in verse 27 actually means no matter what happens. No matter what happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul had just spoken to them in verses 21 through 26. And remember, he was in a Roman prison at this time. And he speaks to them about how conflicted he is about what's going to happen to him. Will he be sentenced to death? Or will he be given his freedom so that he can come back and minister to them once again. It's interesting to see that he actually prefers the former. He would rather be put to death and go home to be with his Savior. That was his own personal desire, but he also greatly wanted to come back to them, so he is conflicted. And what he's saying here is either way, whether I am sentenced to die and we part, or whether I come back to minister to you, I charge you to live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel. Well, this morning I hope that you picked up a sheet in the back so that you can take notes. Uh, One thing that is on the back of that sheet is related text, and I've put a number of passages there so that you can just flip it over rather than to uh, roll so fast through your Bible to try to find these texts. But I, I wanted to just show you Uh, three or four other texts that really say the same thing that we find in our passage. And the first one is in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, where it says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Colossians 1.10 says, So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you 
as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And also we referred to this already, but Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 20, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this charge is made over and over again to believers with a little bit of different terminology. Citizens of heaven are expected to act in a way that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord, worthy of our calling, so that the gospel is not slandered by our living. The conduct of any believer is important in every situation of life, no matter where you find yourself or what your status is. In fact, even for slaves, the scripture gives us instruction. There are no exceptions. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the gospel or the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So this idea of living in such a way that um, backs up the very gospel that we preached, that our conduct is done in such a manner that we walk worthy of the doctrine of God, of the gospel, is over and over. And I love this passage because it uses the word uh, that so that they will adorn the, God, the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn there in Titus 2, 9 through 12. That word is from the Greek root cosmos. When you hear the word cosmos, you think of what? The heavens. The stars, all that God has put in place there. The heavens, it says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The vast orderliness and beauty that we see when we go out on a dark, clear night and we see the stars all arranged in perfect order. The same stars that I saw when I was a little boy, I can go back out at night and see them as though they haven't moved, even though they tell us they're racing at incredible speeds away from one another. Isn't that amazing? The orderliness, the adornment of the heavens that we have, that God has put in place, is an example to us of how our lives should be toward the gospel. And so this morning, our challenge from the text is this. As citizens of heaven... We need to understand and apply three instructions from this passage 
that will help us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul gives three exhortations here to Philippi, to Bethel Baptist Church, to all believers, to tell us how we are to conduct ourselves. He doesn't leave us without a clue. He gives us instructions on how we can make that happen right here in this text. And the first one is that we should team up to defend and advance the faith of the gospel. Team up to defend and advance the faith of the gospel. And that's found right there in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's a call here to both defensive and offensive teamwork on behalf of the gospel. First of all, this is a call to defensive teamwork. The phrase there, standing firm, is a picture of soldiers defending something. There must be a defensive stand to defend ourselves, first of all, from the attacks of Satan. So we have to apply this individually to our own hearts, first of all. We're called to stand firm in Ephesians 6, 11 through 17, where it describes our struggle like the struggle that uh, Christian and faithful had on their journey to the celestial city. There is a struggle that we have on this path to glory against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Verse 13 says in that passage in Ephesians 6, it says, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. A great deal of the armor mentioned throughout those verses is defensive armor. In fact, all but one is defensive armor. First off, it says that we are to have our our, uh, loins girded with truth. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We are to bear and hold and arm ourselves or defend ourselves with the shield of faith. We are to wear the helmet of salvation. We are to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of, feet, of, of peace. And when you think about that, it says really to me that the gospel is the very foundation for us to stand upon. Soldiers must be standing in order to be defending, right? You can't defend from a seated position. You must be standing in your foundation. The analogy being used here is that our our foundation is the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. But there has to be cooperation and harmony in order to stand together. It says they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And the idea literally is that we are to stand together as one person or one soul is the idea. This means that we stand together like soldiers at our posts, watchful and alert and ready to fight shoulder to shoulder to defend the gospel against 
outward pressures that come into the church and become even a part of the church and they present to us doctrinal error. False teachers that can come into the church, we're to defend against that. And we have to be equipped with the gospel, with the word of God in order to know how to do that. So we defend in harmony with one another, watching for that which would creep in and distill or change the gospel of Christ. That can happen so easily, can't it? Because there are many who will come in for various reasons and they don't even know how much Satan is influencing them. And we need to be on guard and on watch for that, defending against that. So we have to stand firm in one spirit in harmony with one another because no team can succeed if there is not unity. In fact, if we stand divided, we are literally then making room where the gospel can be attacked and affected. We are literally then, if we stand divided, not having harmony with one another, we're standing actually against the gospel. 1 Peter 3 verse 8 says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Together we should have properties that represent a united heart, a harmonious church. I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and the men will appreciate this. I don't know if the ladies will, but duct tape. I like the properties of duct tape. All you guys have gone to the men's mall or Home Depot or something and and grabbed a roll of duct tape and you have it in your garage because you know that's useful for so many things. I mean, the properties of duct tape, it's very strong. It's very flexible. It's very durable. It's very sticky. And I think about that You know, have you ever taken a piece of duct tape and you're taking it outside to wrap something up or hold something together, strengthen something, and you hold that in the wind and the wind catches it and it flops over on itself and it's stuck to itself. That's kind of the way that we need to be. But we want want to have all of the properties of duct tape. We want to be flexible so that when someone might say a word to you that's offensive or you don't agree with what they're saying, that creates a rift and something between you that you're no longer unified. Or just the durability of it. Are you able to go through a hard time in a church or maybe one of the pastors or elders or another brother or sister comes to you and says, There's something that I see in your life that I just would like to talk to you about because I love you. I want to help you through this. And those are sometimes hard things for us to take, right? And so we're not very durable and it's easy just to run off, right? Run off to another church. But we don't want to be that way because we're not doing this just for ourselves. We're doing this for the sake of the gospel of Christ, 
We're doing this for the sake of the testimony of the church. We're doing this for the sake of our own testimony. And so we need to be inseparable and standing together. But this is also an offensive teamwork. It says striving together for the faith of the gospel. We strive together with one piece of offensive armor from that passage in Ephesians 5. Verse 17 says, Take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it is in that way that we advance the gospel. We present the gospel in an unadulterated way. We let the Spirit of God take the Word of God and apply it to the hearts of people. We could never convince anyone that it's true. Only God himself can do it. That's the way it worked in your heart if you know Christ. It was the Spirit of God. It was no one else. And so we take the Word of God and we deliver it faithfully because we're ambassadors of mercy. We're not out to destroy. It's not a picture of soldiers who are out to to cut something up and destroy it. We're out with the gospel of mercy to be applied to the hearts of people by the Spirit of God who gives faith. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our job is to bring the gospel to people. And it is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, that we give to them. And we tell them the good news of Christ, who has died for the lost, who, if they would trust him, would cover every sin that they have and take it away as far as the east is from the west. But our job is not to have a contradiction in our life in the way we conduct ourselves so that our message is believable and valid before the world. Well, the first instruction is to team up and defend and advance the faith of the gospel. The second instruction is stay calm through suffering to be a witness of the gospel. Stay calm through suffering to be a witness to the gospel. And that's found in verses 28 through 30. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Verse 28 starts out, in no way alarmed by your opponents. And so we have another word picture. Paul loves to use word pictures. It gets his message across. It's kind of like an illustration. And he uses the the word alarmed. The word there is representative of a horse in battle who gets spooked. And it either is stunned and stops, or it races off in a wrong direction. It's the terror of a startled horse. There can be incredible opposition to the gospel. 
But we are not to become overwhelmed by it, but to continue to trust God through the opposition. 1 Peter 3, 14-16 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I was trying to think of a good illustration of not being startled by opposition. And I'm kind of a wannabe civil war buff, you know. So I I think I am, but I don't know that I really am. I I like to go, uh, my wife is from out east, and so we go out there and there are all these civil war battlefields. And I'll go out there and my wife sometimes sits in the car, but I I go out and I read all of the... um, all the historical things that happened there. And I stand on the field and I look over here and that must be where they came and this is where they were. And I kind of put a movie together in my mind and and I, I enjoy that. So this is the one I was thinking of. Stonewall Jackson, he received his military training at West Point where a great number of Civil War officers from both the Union and the Confederate armies received their training. They were actually classmates. Well, Stonewall Jackson became his name. But before he became Stonewall, he was given the name Tom Fool. And that was when he was in training at West Point because he was at the bottom of his class. And they called, they scorned him. They called him Tom Fool. He he actually faced a lot of ridicule and opposition. And I don't know what the North thought about him as a general. They probably thought, oh good, he's, he's a general for the Confederates. But actually, as it turns out, that all changed during the Civil War because he was seen in the midst of battle on his horse, fearlessly raising his hand toward heaven and crying out for divine help for the forces of the South, okay? And they actually said that he looked like a stone wall standing there while bullets were flying past him. Well, that's the picture that we have here. And I kind of like a quote that Stonewall Jackson said. He said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. That's the way it should be for us. We should be able to go through opposition trusting God. I'm not condoning the South here. It's an illustration, okay? But I want you to understand the picture that we have, that we should be relying upon God because this is not natural. That kind of fearlessness is not something that comes to us on our own. It comes from God. To the lost, it says that calmness in in extreme opposition is a sign to them of their destruction. 
It's a sign or a demonstration or a proof, verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them. To the lost, when they see the any believer confident through opposition, looking to the Lord, it actually is for them a sign of their own destruction, the Bible says. I was thinking of um, the Philippians and what they must have been thinking about as Paul wrote this. Paul had come to them on the second missionary journey for about three months. He worked there in Philippi to establish the Philippian church. Paul had Silas with him, and they were fearlessly teaching and preaching the gospel for various reasons, but all coming back to the gospel. They were thrown into a prison. And you can actually go online and find that what they think was the same prison that Paul and Silas were in. It's still there. It's kind of a hole in the earth. And they were put there in stocks. They were put there um, after having been beaten. And they were delivered by God. God opened that prison cell by an earthquake. In fact, he did more than that. He opened the stocks. Their feet were in stocks. This is a miracle from the Lord. And they were delivered out of the prison along with all of the other prisoners. And and when they went out of that prison, they saw the Philippian jailer with a sword about to take his own life. And they cried out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. You see, the fearless trust in God, and they didn't run away, they stayed. That was a sign to the Philippian jailer that the gospel that they preach was true. And he put his faith in Christ. He cried out to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? These signs from God are also assigned to the believing that they are assured of their salvation. And I think you may have actually experienced this yourself. When you go through some persecution for the name of Christ, for giving out the gospel, and you're laughed at or scoffed at, doesn't it, isn't it in your heart to be thinking, well, this is hard, but praise God that he's counted me worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel? And that's the idea here. It's a sign to both the saved and to the unsaved. These signs are from God. Calmness in persecution is not normal. These cannot be produced by anybody but God. By bringing us to persecution, God is working on our behalf and causing us to depend more and more upon him. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4-9 talks about calm suffering and how it's a sign or indicator to both saved and unsaved. It calls us to persevere, to continue not only living but sharing the gospel of Christ. I just want to read that. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication 
of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Why should we persevere through suffering? Because of what's at stake for the lost. You know, when we think about those words, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Just being apart from God for eternity is a horrible thing. But the word of God tells us about the eternal torment and suffering that the lost will have in a lake of fire. And we we need to understand how important it is in this life, though we may suffer, let us do it in dependence upon the Lord. And it's a, it's a sign to them and it's a sign to us that they will be destroyed, but that we are saved. So let us persevere through the gospel and bringing it to the lost. In fact, if you look in verse 29, it says, for you, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Granted is from the word charizo. Charizo is the Greek word where we get the root charis. Charis means grace. It has been granted to you or it has been graced to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It points out two really important uh, spiritual uh, ideas to us that we can take from this passage. Number one, belief is a gift of God. It has been given to us by God. No person comes to belief on their own. Like Chuck read this morning, the God of this world has blinded their eyes lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. But God has shown in our hearts. The, the idea there is that it is only God who can bring illumination to the lost heart. And he brings belief. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But also in the same way that faith is a gift, a grace from God, so is suffering. In fact, Vincent, in his word studies, I like the way he says this, suffering is our marriage gift given to us when we were espoused to Christ. Both of these gifts Belief in Christ and suffering have been gifted to us, granted to us, graced to us for his sake. Well, let me ask you, how do you feel about that gift that God has given? The gift to suffer for his sake. 
We mentioned in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas, having been jailed in Philippi for the sake of Jesus, that after they were stripped and beaten with rods, it says, with many blows, and then they they were fastened in stocks. Their feet were put into stocks. Imagine then the pain and the confinement, the thoughts that they certainly could have had. How could God let this happen to us when we're preaching the gospel? This is unfair. This is not what we bargained for. But guess what? They did bargain for that. They knew that that was God's will for them to suffer for his sake. And they lead us in spiritual worship in Acts 16.25, where it says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Wow, listening to them. That's the effect that we have when we go with the gospel to the world, and they scorn us. And we don't get angry, and we don't run away, but we continue to give the gospel. We continue to implore the lost to come to Christ because it's that important. It's not about us. It's about their eternal salvation so that they will not be eternally lost. Let us humble ourselves in this way and receive God's gracious gift of suffering to us. The Lord uses suffering to bind us closer to himself. Our passage says that this is for his sake. It is his will that our fellowship with Christ would grow through suffering. Philippians 3 verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. That word fellowship is from the Greek word koinonia. Um, When I went to Bible college, we had a fellowship hall that they named Koinonia Hall. That was the place where we would go to eat. And when you eat and you're sitting there conversing with people and fellowshipping, that's when you get to know people. When you're in the midst of that situation, that's when your friendships grow. Your knowledge of other people grow. The intimacy grows. This is what happens to us when we go through suffering and keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. When we trust Him, we go through those hard times and our fellowship with Christ grows closer and closer and we grow in knowledge of our Savior. Also, the Lord uses suffering to bind His saints together. In verse 30, It says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. God uses our suffering to bind the saints together in a way that could not happen just having church with no trouble. (laughs) Isn't it true how often has it been that We have grown close to somebody here at Bethel. We have grown closer and closer by the opportunity of ministering to one another in need. And that's a wonderful thing, that we can grow in unity together in that way. 
This fellowship that we have with Christ is shared with one another. What a privilege. And so God calls us, secondly, to stay calm through suffering, to be a witness to the gospel. And then thirdly, the third instruction that he gives is that we should reflect God's grace to experience unity in the gospel. Reflect God's grace in order to, re- to experience unity. Obviously, the Philippians were struggling with unity. That's very obvious as you read this passage. He was very, very close to them. He thanked them earlier in the chapter for their participation in the gospel. But when you look at this and twice in verse 27, and then also uh, in verse 2 of chapter 2, you see the idea that they need to have the same mind and be united in spirit. It tells us that they weren't. So obviously they were struggling, and maybe it was partially to do with their own circumstances. I'm sure it was, the, the suffering that they were going through. But I think it may also have been because of the suffering that they saw in Paul. Paul was the apostle who was their father in the faith. He had come and shared Christ with them. They had come to Christ. They had believed the truth. And now Paul was over in a Roman prison and they had just sent Epaphroditus with a gift to minister to his need and to to speak with him, to console him, to encourage him. And then Epaphroditus became very sick and it took some time for him to come back to good health. The Lord healed him. And Paul sent back the book of Philippians to to these believers in Philippi. And certainly this whole thing about Paul being in a Roman prison, now they could have had some of those thoughts. How could God allow this to happen? And they could have started to become frustrated. Here Paul is away from us. He can't minister to us. He's enduring great suffering. Maybe we'll be put to death. We're going through all this opposition here. And so they were struggling with unity. If we're not trusting the Lord and we start to get startled by opposition or we get fearful, it is then that we can easily become frustrated with one another, isn't it? Because when our eyes are taken off the Lord and they're put on circumstances, when that vertical relationship is not right, neither is the horizontal relationship. And so this is what he's trying to point out to the Philippians, that they need to have harmony between themselves. And he makes an appeal to them based upon the grace of God in their own lives. He calls on them to reflect the grace that God has shown to them in their treatment of one another. We already said that unity cannot be produced by ourselves. Even though we are supposed to strive for it, it is a matter of dependence upon Christ. It's a matter of abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit so that we have His power to go through circumstances and not be overtaken by them. In His high priestly prayer, 
Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 22 and 23. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You see what's at stake? The gospel's at stake. There needs to be unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And so it is God who unifies us, not ourselves. We, we can have all kinds of good intentions. We can try harder and harder and harder, but circumstances always outweigh determinations, don't they? Unless we have our eyes focused on Christ, walking in the Spirit, abiding in Him. So I want you this morning, as we come closer to our uh, wrapping this up, I just want to share with you these fourfold graces of God in these verses and how each one of these should benefit us, how they should teach us how to be toward one another, the way that Christ has been toward us. So it says there, and I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 2 again. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If there be any encouragement in Christ, do you have any encouragement in Christ at all? Think about how our sin has been forgiven, how it has no claim to rule our lives anymore, how we rest in Christ for His righteousness and we have been justified, declared righteous. There is no more condemnation for us if we've trusted in Him. Think about your position in Christ. We've talked about how we are citizens of heaven. Do you know that the Bible says we, have, we are seated in the heavenlies with Him right now? That is a truth. Even though we're still in this world, we are seated with Him in the heavenlies. He has adopted us as sons and daughters into the family of God. We have the encouragement of the word of God and the promises that he gives us there all through scripture. Our future is secured and we have unimaginable future in the presence of Christ. Do we have any encouragement in Christ? Certainly we do. If, we, if any consolation of love God, the God of all comfort has set his love upon us. He always, always, always loves us. That will never change. Even if we may not conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, that will never change. Once you are his child, when we fail him like Peter did in denying him three times, what did he do? 
He restored Peter. He comforted him. And He set him out to do the work to feed His sheep. God never takes a believer and says, well, I'm done with you. You're on a shelf. I'm not going to be able to use you anymore. That is wrong theology. It's taught in a lot of churches. And it's wrong. God does not do that. He continues to disciple His own. He'll even bring uh, discipline into our life, even to the point of taking us home to be with Him if we will not repent. But God does not ever put us on a shelf. He is the God of all comfort. He gives us the consolation of His love. Do we have any fellowship of the Spirit? God has given us a fellowship with Him through His indwelling Spirit. The Holy Spirit assures our hearts. He he, uh, corrects us when we're sinning. He convicts us. He prays for us. When we don't know how to pray, He prays on our behalf. And the Spirit of God empowers us to live a life pleasing to Him, to be the citizens of heaven that conduct themselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. That all comes from God. And then it says, any affection and compassion. Think about how Christ demonstrated his affection and his compassion while he was here on this earth. The concern and empathy, the affection and compassion that he demonstrated to the woman at the well that he demonstrated to his disciples in John chapter 13 through 17 that Kirk preached about uh, maybe a year ago. This is the, the way that we ought to be, and it is literally an attitude that we are to have. <clears throat> if you look at Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, that great passage about let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, how he left heaven's glory and he came with that kind of compassion and affection. It was his joy to come to this earth for our salvation. And so do we have any of these things? Yes, we have all of them is the answer. And so this exhortation is an appeal to us to share this with our brothers and sisters. That is the basis of unity, the grace that Christ has shown to us that we already know in Him. But it is not an exhortation to uniformity. It is not saying, you know, you need to be unified, so therefore you must all agree on everything that there is. That's not the way life works, is it? be pretty boring for one thing, but um, if everybody, when you ask what color carpeting should we put in, and everybody said uh, uh, mauve, you know, or or purple, everybody is on the same note. That's just not going to happen. It's not about uniformity. That's not what unity is. Unity is having the same mind, the mind of Christ. Unity is not about unanimity of thinking. It's, a, it's about unanimity of heart and purpose. That's what allows us 
to say, I don't have to have my way. That's what allows us to have a committee to decide on something that we may disagree of uh, with, and we say, that's okay, because I don't have to have my way. This outworking of humility is described here in verses 2 through 4, having the same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is the purpose? The proclamation of the gospel, the work of God going forward through their lives. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. He takes humility the next step. He talks about lowliness. Literally think of, thinking of yourselves in a lower way than you think of your brother and sister in Christ. Serving them first rather than serving your own desires. This is what he is talking about. This is the unity that comes to us through the grace of God that he has poured out to us when it's reflected from our lives into our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That we would go beyond humility that says, okay, have your way, to saying, let me help you in that. That is what God wants us to become. Those are the graces that he showed toward us to draw us to himself, that we might know him and that we might know him intimately. What is important to you? Is it going through this life and manufacturing your own way, finding your way to be what is fulfilled for you all the time? Maybe vying for a position or for um, some kind of uh, fame before people? That is what needs to be put away if we're going to reflect the grace of Christ in our lives. So let's ask God to do this for us. He's already given us all these graces, but we need to ask the Lord to help us to reflect that kind of grace toward one another so that we draw closer and closer and closer to one another because it is not about us. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward in a way that is adorned by our lives so that it is not slandered, so that we as citizens of heaven will conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's close together. Father, this morning as we have just considered this short passage and gleaned from it some things that uh, you have given to us. What you intend for us to do is to adorn the gospel of Christ in every way so that the gospel will not be shamed or given a bad name, but that it will be held up as the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so I pray that we would have a unity in purpose and intent and in spirit that would be unified 
by you as we walk in the Spirit. Oh, Father, otherwise all that happens is we fulfill the lust of the flesh and we are in disunity and we struggle through opposition and the gospel does not go forth. Oh, Lord, may this not be what happens. May we heed your instruction this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.